Amen. God is faithful. Steve, I have a Bible for you here. Well, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 9. I got a text from Steve last night saying that he had moved the pulpit back and we weren't going to say anything. We were just going to see how long it took for people to notice, but Scott let the cat out of the bag right away. I know that none of you noticed it whatsoever. You know? <laughs> yes. I do have the gift of projecting, so it is also safe for those who don't want to be spit on. So, uh, We're in Mark chapter 1. We finish up down to verse 8 last week, and so we're picking up in verse 9. We'll read down through verse 13. Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. God, we do confess that you are faithful. As we look at the story of your people throughout the Old Testament, so often we see how unfaithful they were, and yet how faithful you are and have been. Lord, in our own lives, we can see where we have not been faithful to you. But Lord, you are faithful all of the time. You have promised, Lord, that you would cause your word to go out and have its intended effect. And we trust you and your faithfulness in that. Would you help us as we look into your word, Lord? Help our hearts, transform us, I pray, as we look at your son in this gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. If you live long enough on this planet, you will know the experience of being disappointed by somebody. All of us run into, at one point or another, the, the sense of being disappointed. I mean, it can be as simple as athletes. You got your hope in a team, and they let you down. I just checked uh, the Detroit Lions and their odds of going to the playoffs this year. The New York Times told me that they have less than 1% chance of going to the playoffs. They haven't had a single win all season long. And I grew up watching the Detroit Lions thinking, they're going to make it. They're going to make it. You know, enough years of that going on, and you, I don't know, it kind of gets into your skin a little bit. You know, I don't, I don't watch with the kind of anticipation I used to. Uh, or politicians. Politicians can do things that you think they would never do. We get excited about Supreme Court justice, justices being appointed, and they rule in ways that you think, how can this be? Maybe you even had the experience of spiritual leaders, people that you looked up to, whether in a church or from another church that you followed a ministry, and you thought, this is where it's at. This, if God just continued to bless this ministry, 
while the whole world will be turned upside down. And, and then you find out that there's some moral failing. If you live long enough on this planet, you will know the feeling of being disappointed by somebody that you look up to. That's a hard and a sad reality. And some people have it happen many more times in their lives than others. Some people are, are simply jaded by feeling that. They're, they, they get to the point of being cynical and, and don't want to look up to anybody. And as we look at our passage in Mark this morning, I think we're being encouraged to look up to somebody who does not fail. The Lord Jesus, under temptation, was faithful. At that, that moment of greatest temptation, that this time of testing, he did not buckle. Mark's gospel invites us to look to a champion who never loses the competition. To look to a leader who does what's right all of the time. The text this morning, I think, is calling us to believe in God's beloved Son who was faithful under temptation. We'll look first at the baptism of Jesus in verses 9 to 11 and then the temptation of Jesus in 12 through 13. Striking, there's, and this is just the, the case with Mark, he's always uh, pretty slim on details. We're going to see that throughout these two accounts and outside of here. But in verse 9, he says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Jesus seems to come out of nowhere, in a sense, in this gospel. Remember, he doesn't give us a birth narrative. He just tells us that Jesus comes out of Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized. Now, you'll remember from the other gospel accounts that uh, Joseph is warned to flee. He goes to Egypt, and Joseph and Mary and Jesus live in Egypt for a number of years until Herod dies. Then they come back to Judah, but Herod's predecessor, uh, no, not predecessor, successor, the guy who comes after, the guy who comes after Herod, uh, he's got to look out too. It's, it's not safe for them even there. So they decide they need to go somewhere a little more hidden, right? So let's not hang around Judah, Judea. Let's not hang around Jerusalem. Joseph goes with his family, and they go up to Galilee. That's kind of out of the way. But not the Decapolis. There's the, the ten cities there. They're not going to hang out in a, a major city. You know, there's probably too many wanted posters around, something like that. They decide instead they're going to go to Nazareth. Now, of course, Matthew tells us that's also to fulfill prophecy. But we kind of get a sense of the, the sort of place that Nazareth is. Uh, it, it's a nowhere kind of place. And it's probably the place you would want to go if you were trying to hide, right? They go out to the middle of nowhere. Uh, Philip, or excuse me, not Philip, but Nathaniel in, in John 1.46, upon hearing of Jesus from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, if, if your area where you're growing up is Nazareth, people don't necessarily have uh, a high view of where you're going. Uh, it's not a place of prominence. Uh, Jesus comes out of the middle of nowhere in this gospel. It does not seem too important. The next thing we see in verse 9 
is that he comes to be baptized. Now, last week we, uh, we were looking at John's baptism. Remember, it was a baptism of repentance. People would come, they'd confess their sins, they'd be baptized in the River Jordan. Now, that was something for sinners to do. In fact, John was calling all sinners to do that. But here's Jesus coming to the River Jordan, being baptized. From the external look of it all, he would seem to be somebody just like everybody else. There, there wasn't a lot to distinguish Jesus from anybody else on the outside. Now, of course, we know from Scripture, he's got nothing to confess, nothing to repent of. He has no sin but he is coming to be baptized, and, and there he's associating with sinners. He comes and he is standing in the place of sinners there. From the external look of it, well, he would need that. Now, we know he doesn't. Uh, John even knows he doesn't. In other gospel accounts, John says, basically, you know, you should be baptizing me. <laughs> so, uh, in God's eyes, and, and for those who know it, they know he's not sinful, uh, but here he is. He's coming out of nowhere. He's being baptized. Seems to look like the rest of us. Uh, he stands in the place of sinner. Now, of course, the, the place where he does that the most is at the cross, where Jesus stands in the place of sinners. Uh, if you get crucified, you're probably either, in this day, uh, a very bad person. That's an, it's a, uh, an excruciating way to die. Or you're an enemy of the state. Something along those lines. Uh, now, Jesus being crucified, passersbys would think this guy, his mission comes to nothing, and he must be a pretty bad guy or an enemy of the state. Uh, Jesus on the cross stands in the place of sinners. And as we, we see in the gospel and other, other places throughout the New Testament, it's no accident. It's not by accident that Jesus goes to the cross. In fact, it's God's plan to save sinners. Uh, but in all these things, we see Jesus is coming here. Uh, initially, in verse 9, he doesn't seem to be anything too remarkable to speak of. Uh, but then we get verses 10 and 11, and it tells us a very different story about who this Jesus is. Verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This man from Nazareth was no other, none other than the son of God. It says here that the, the heavens are torn open, they're ripped open. The spirit descends on Jesus and the father declares his love for the son. At this point, Jesus is identified and he is affirmed. He is the son of the father. He is loved by the father. And he is approved by the father. Now that's further evidence that he has no sin. Because if, if he had sin, he would not be approved. But he is. When you think about this moment, uh, it's not as if at this moment now God is pleased with him. Now his father is pleased with him. Uh, the Father has always loved the Son. It's true at this moment, and it's been true from eternity past. The Father has loved His Son. 
and when the second person of the Trinity takes on human flesh, there's no disruption in that relationship. It's not as if that relationship changed. That eternal love continues. In this passage, we also see the third person of the Trinity. It says here that the Spirit descends on Jesus as a dove. Now, the Greek there is more specific. It says it descends into Jesus. Uh, and that we, we see a, a picture of the Spirit coming down as a dove. Now, here's a, one of those $5 theological words. It's not a $10 word. Those are out there, too. This is a $5 word. It's, it's got a little price tag on it. Many of you probably know it. The, the word is theophany. Have you heard of that word before? The, the idea of a theophany is an appearance of God. Now, we know that nobody can see God and live, uh, but there are times throughout the Bible where God gives uh, something like a condescension, an, an image, where uh, it, it's some kind of an appearance of the Lord, but it's not actually uh, a sighting of God like we will see on that final day. Uh, it is not as if the Holy Spirit has always been a dove, literally is a dove, but rather this is picturing something uh, about the Spirit as he comes down on Jesus. The coming of the Spirit at this moment uh, tells us something about Jesus' ministry. This tells us about, about by which Spirit Jesus will minister. Now, later in Mark, in chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, the scribes will charge Jesus uh, of doing miracles and casting out demons by Beelzebul. They basically say, Jesus' miracles, all the things that he does, he does it by the power of Satan. Uh, that, that's where their mind goes because they can't accept Jesus. Uh, Mark will tell us that, and Jesus in Mark's gospel will tell us that it's part of what Jesus calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we see here at the beginning that it's, it's not by some uh, dark magic that Jesus does miracles. Rather, it is by the Holy Spirit. So we see who Jesus is. He's the beloved Son, well-pleasing to the Father. And we see that the Holy Spirit is in him, filling him and empowering him. Now, it's a little hard for us to get our minds around because we know Jesus is God. He's fully God. And yet, in his earthly ministry, the Spirit was at work through him in his ministry. All of God is always at work in everything that God does. In creation, the, the Father is creator, and yet he creates through the Son. And the Holy Spirit makes it happen. In redemption, it's the Father's plan. The Son carries it out, and the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. We shouldn't be surprised here at the baptism of Jesus that we see all three persons at work in this moment. I think uh, another important part for us here is to see that uh, this becomes the, the beginning, the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, this, this was a key defining moment for the church as they look back at the work of Jesus. In um, Acts chapter 1, you'll remember through the gospel account, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve apostles, betrays Jesus. And after doing so, he becomes convicted, and he goes out and he hangs himself. Judas is dead. The 12 apostles are down to 11. 
and the apostles decide that they're going to replace Judas. They're going to have somebody else take his office. And as they're thinking through the, the company that they have and who's going to replace Judas, in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 to 22, he says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time of the Lord Jesus, um, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So that's the, the boundary markers for them. From the baptism of John until he was taken up. That, that's the qualifier. So you can see in that the apostles are, are seeing this moment, this baptism, as a defining moment. All four Gospels include the baptism of Jesus by John. This is a, a defining uh, beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And uh, that's where Mark starts his account for us. We've seen John prepare the way for Jesus, and now we see Jesus is approved by God. So what's the next thing? What's the, the next big event that we're told about in the life and ministry of Jesus? Verses 12 to 13, you see the temptation of Jesus. It's striking that this same spirit that descends on Jesus, in verse 12, says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Jesus we, we just hear that he is the beloved son of the Father, that he is well approved of, and the Spirit is with him, and that Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. The, it's a very powerful word there for drives him out. The other Gospels don't use quite as strong of language as Mark does. He tends to, I don't know if he's rougher around the edges or what, I don't know, but Mark, Mark says it pretty straightforwardly. that The word is ekbalo. It means to cast out uh, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit. Now, the wilderness is not a pretty place. Uh, it's not a place of fun and amusement. We've been studying numbers on Wednesday night, and we've been seeing that Israel does time in the wilderness. Because of their disobedience, they do a lot of time in the wilderness. Uh, it's not a hospitable place. If you're going to spend a day in the wilderness, you're going to want to pack a good lunch and probably a first aid kit. Uh, if you're alone, you're going to want a sidearm. Uh, there are dangerous animals out in the wilderness. It's not the place for a picnic. And the Spirit presses Jesus out to this desolate place. Why? Why is the beloved Son driven out to the wilderness? The wilderness will be the place of testing. An old enemy will need to be confronted. That ancient serpent lurks in the wilderness. Jesus is going to be tempted by the tempter, and he's going to spend 40 days in that condition. We know from other Gospels, Mark doesn't mention it, other Gospels tells us that he fasted for those entire 40 days. Jesus is tempted but he is victorious over Satan's temptation. I think there's several important things that we want to see in this passage about what that means about Jesus and what that means about us. Jesus is faithful where Adam failed. I think we're supposed to see some connections here. 
Adam and Eve, when they were tempted by the tempter, they gave in. The big difference is Jesus didn't. He was successful over the temptation of Satan. Adam and Eve were placed in a garden, lush and beautiful. Uh, it was so nice they didn't even have to have clothes. It, it was a pretty comfortable place to be. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's cast out into the wilderness. Another thing that we see here, maybe Mark intends this to be here, I don't know. You see that the wild animals are here. The, the word there is the word for beast. You know, these aren't probably rabbits and ground squirrels and fluffy critters. You know, these are, these are inhospitable animals. Uh, he, but he is there. Adam named all of the animals that uh, came before him at God's command. Uh, it's a friendly place, right, in the garden. It, it's not a, uh, a dangerous place to be interacting with animals. But here Jesus is out with the wild animals. Jesus was faithful where Adam failed. The challenge that confronted Jesus was far greater than that which confronted Adam, and Jesus was triumphant. Next, I think, might even be a note here, pointing to the fact that Jesus is faithful where Israel failed. Remember, the first time that Moses goes up on the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments, he's up there for 40 days. And what does Israel do during those 40 days? Without their leader? They make a golden calf. They worship another god. Now, this number 40 just keeps coming up in the Bible. In fact, the spies, we've been reading in Numbers 13, 40, uh, excuse me, 12 spies go out for 40 days to spy out the land. And they come back, not with faith, except for Joshua and Caleb, they come back with fear, and they tell the people, we can't do it. Israel rebels. And because of that, they're going to spend a year in the wilderness for every day that the spies were out. They spend 40 days out in the wilderness, and it was full of complaining. Where Israel failed, Jesus was faithful. I think in our own lives, as we step back and think about this, the reality for us is that Jesus is faithful where we have failed. It's not just about Adam, about Israel. Of course, it comes home to us. Jesus was faithful where we were not. Temptation has come our way and we have taken the bait. Now, I say we, I mean every single one of us. Uh, I can say that because Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. So we should know that about each other. We have said yes where we should have said no. We have said no where we should have said yes. We have said no to God and we have said yes to sin. When confronted in temptation at points in our lives, we have given in. We show ourselves to be no stronger than Adam. Had we been in Adam's place, I think we would have done the same thing that Adam did. It's not the case with Jesus. He was given a far harder situation than Adam or Israel or us. He was faithful. He never once sinned. If we face the devil in our own power, he will eat our lunch every time. 
but Jesus has been faithful where we have been faithless. And in Christ, we have forgiveness. A forgiveness where we have failed. We have power when we lean on the Lord, when we trust in him. We have power to say no to Satan's temptation. And in him, we have ultimate victory. Satan, having tempted Adam and Eve into sin, is, is happy to see them condemned. Satan does that in our lives all the time. He, he uh, rabble-rouses and encourages us to sin, and then when we do, he turns around and condemns us. He condemns us even for just the simply feeling tempted. On that final day, when we stand before God, our sin will not leave us condemned. Jesus has died for us. He has paid our penalty. And we will stand justified in Jesus on that final day. Satan will not have the victory. He was no match for the Savior. Jesus remained faithful under his temptation. Now, having looked at these two accounts, just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about the fact that they're side by side. That the beloved son is cast out into the wilderness. It's a, it's a little striking that this beloved son is sent out to be tempted. What do we do with that? Mark doesn't make a lot of comment on it, but I, I think the fact that they're side by side should get us thinking a bit about it. First of all, God is not tempting his son. God is not trying to get Jesus to sin. I think we know that much from Scripture. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God doesn't trade in sin. He doesn't deal in the economy of sin in the sense that he has it within himself and he tries to incite it in somebody else. Satan does. That's Satan's stock and trade. It's not God's. God is sinless and he never tries to make someone sin. Instead, God is sending Jesus out into the wilderness for a time of testing. And it's in that time of testing that Jesus will be tempted by Satan. God means for this trial in Jesus' life to prove the faithfulness of his son. God's purpose is not to try to get Jesus to sin. Rather, his purpose is for righteousness to win out. And through this, it's going to bring about the redemption of sinners. Now, Satan's going to be doing his part doing his best to try to make Jesus sin, though he's going to fail. I think we want to think about that, because how does, how does that operate in our lives? As we think about temptation in our own lives, uh, we want to think about that in light of this. There's a few things. We've already seen James. God is never trying to get you to sin. It, it's not like he's trying to get you to sin. You say, well, okay, I'm, as if God's insecure. He needs to see if you, he's putting this test before you, trying to get you to sin in hopes that, hmm, Maybe you'll prove faithful, but he thinks probably not. That's not what God does. Now, he does bring us into tests and into trials, never with the intent to make us sin. So we can know God does not tempt us to sin. On the other hand, we also see that just because we are God's beloved children, 
just because he loves us with an infinite love does not mean that we won't have challenges in this life. It does not mean that we will not have trials. God brings even his beloved son through the wilderness. But God's plan in that, that we can be confident, is that it was for good. God's plan through bringing his son into the wilderness was for the salvation of sinners. God brings us through hard times, and sometimes that's for the good of another person. Always it's for our good. He has good plans for us. Now, he's training us and growing us. Jesus had no sin. He didn't need to be purified, uh, but the reality is we do. And as we walk with the Lord, he's bringing us through difficult times for our good in, in his plans to conform us to the image of his son. That's a hard thing for us. Maybe that's not the way we would want to write our story. But that's God's good and wise plan for us. And we can be confident that he loves us. He is working for our good. And we have to be wary of the fact that Satan is still working. He is seeking to tempt us. We shouldn't go through life with a foolhardy attitude as if we didn't have an enemy. We want to say no to the tempter. We find ourselves in the wilderness for different reasons. We may find ourselves in a season of hardship, and perhaps our sin contributed to it. We see that in the example of Israel, right? Israel rebels, they don't go into the land, and they spend 40 years in a literal wilderness as a consequence for their sin. Sometimes, although we have forgiveness in Christ, there are still consequences in our life. Even that is for our good. Even that is for our growth in obedience and seeking the Lord's face. And sometimes we're in a season of wilderness and our sin has nothing to do with it. There, there's a plan that we don't see and yet we can be confident that God is working for our good and for the good of others around us. We do not want to lose hope even if we end up spending a while in the wilderness. And we see in this passage that Jesus was faithful under temptation in the wilderness, he never sinned. That's our hope of eternity with God, that this one was faithful under temptation. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus' first message and the calling of his first disciples. If the men would prepare for communion and Elizabeth would come to...